The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, the State House came back alive this week following a lengthy lull of informal sessions during campaign season and following the election this fall. And uh, here to recap all that happened uh, on Beacon Hill this week are Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matt Murphy. Hi, folks. Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. Hey, happy Friday. Hey, same to you. And we really kicked off this week, Katie, with uh, a number of farewell speeches from departing representatives in the House chamber. And House chamber filled up again, even though it was an informal session. And we heard a lot of accolades for the speaker and leadership, uh, a lot of fond memories, but also uh, a little bit of criticism as well. Yeah, that's right, Sam. Uh, There were a lot of people back in the building this week and a lot of emotions in this kind of last big House session of the year where we heard from 13 outgoing lawmakers. And like you said, there was a lot of talk about proud accomplishments, whether that be uh, same-sex marriage, the state's leading role in health care. Those were both mentioned a few times. Uh, fond memories, kind of inside jokes among lawmakers, um, and some, some mentions of unfinished business. You know, uh, outgoing House Revenue Chairman Jay Kaufman brought up the millionaire's tax. Um, and Kaufman also talked a little bit about how the House has changed over time. He said there used to be longer sessions, more debates. The outcomes of votes were less predictable. And that was one of kind of a few rebukes maybe is a little strong, but criticisms for sure and warnings even of where things stand in the House. Um, Rep. Jim Lyons, the Andover Republican who was defeated this year, who's often been the the one no vote in the House uh, on bills that pass overwhelmingly, he talked a lot about his, his pro-life advocacy in that stance and how he knows it's a, been an unpopular position and, and not always a politically expedient one. But he talked about how the that voice in the House is going to grow dimmer in the new session. And that's something he's brought up a, a lot of times in office is the idea that minority voices aren't heard a lot on Beacon Hill, um, according to him. Um, and really, the, the biggest criticism came from Rep. Corey Atkins. Um, and I'll <clears throat> right. let her, I guess, take it from here. Sure. Voters did not elect anyone to sit here and to look at that board to see how the speaker voted and then automatically do the same thing. Actually, there could be an app for that. And we'll have more clips from those farewell speeches uh, at the end of the podcast today. But uh, continue, Katie. Yeah, the other interesting thing is Rep. Atkins was really the only one who brought up what was kind of an elephant in the room um, that was not mentioned in another farewell speech. She described what she said was her worst moment in the House, as sad as her best moment, marriage equality victory, was exhilarating, was the instance earlier this year where... Rep. Diana DiZoglio, now senator-elect, um, tried to tell her stories of uh, experiences with sexual harassment, ultimately breaking a non-disclosure agreement on the House floor. Mm. Um, in uh, Representative Atkins' telling of it, uh, female members of leadership were used to keep her from telling that story. Um, and she was worried about the impact that that experience had on maybe staffers who might want to tell their own stories, anyone in this kind of Me Too era, trying to grapple with that. Um, A couple 
female reps stood up and applauded her. Otherwise, it it went really unremarked on. But it mm-hmm. suggests that maybe that issue is not over. Although um, Desoglio, as you mentioned, did not uh, address this in her own farewell speech. Right. She kept it short, uh, kept it positive. She was a little more candid on Monday um, in a breakfast at the Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus talking about, again, um, a centralization of power in the House. Um, she said she's looking forward to, to going over to the Senate and uh, hoping to have a little bit of a greater voice there. Sure. And Senate farewell speeches are coming up in the Gardner Auditorium on Monday the 17th. That's right, later this month, and we're uh, looking forward to hearing what that handful of uh, outgoing senators has to say. Sure. Now, Colin, on Wednesday, you and Katie both covered the consensus revenue hearings already looking ahead to fiscal 2020. Give us a quick rundown on what some of the estimates were from the experts who were called in to testify by the Ways and Means chairman. Yes, and this is the annual hearing at which state budget writers and the administration get together to uh, look ahead. It's really the first step in preparing the next state budget, in this case, the fiscal 2020 budget, which would uh, start in July and run through June of 2020. Uh, And despite a strong economy, last year's billion-dollar budget surplus, uh, tax revenues so far this fiscal year are coming in above benchmark, Uh, the hearings had sort of an air of anxiety over them with the uh, notion that there could be a recession coming on the horizon at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, And of course, this hearing is meant to discuss what that would mean for uh, the state's uh, fiscal health. So a series of experts and administration officials, uh, constitutional officers like the treasurer, uh, uh, sat down and testified to the Ways and Means Committees, uh, and overall predicted growth in fiscal year 2020 between 2% and 3.4%. Anywhere in that range would represent a little bit of a step back from the growth we've seen uh, this fiscal year, uh, Revenue Commissioner Christopher Harding uh, told the committees that growth in, between fiscal year 17 and fiscal year 18 was 8.5 percent. Uh, he said that was one of the strongest rates of growth in the past 30 years. Uh, but of course, he cautioned that that will not repeat itself. Uh, and that showed up in the estimates from other uh, uh, groups as well. Uh, Mass Taxpayers Foundation is predicting that fiscal 2020 growth will be 2.4 percent. The Beacon Hill Institute uh, has the same number. They're also predicting 2.4 percent growth. Northeastern University professor Alan Clayton Matthews uh, was the most optimistic of the bunch, uh, predicting 3.4 percent growth. And actually, the Department of Revenue was the least optimistic uh, or the most conservative in its estimates, uh, with Christopher Harding predicting between 2 and 2.2 percent growth, which would mean uh, between 29.2 and $29.4 billion in tax collections in fiscal 20. And Colin, I think you, you summed that up really nicely. Um, I just saw an opportunity for a cringeworthy pun and thought I'd like to take it. Oh, yes, um, I just think it's fair to say that the uh, analyst's 2020 vision is a cautious one. Ooh. Oh, geez. That was... Couldn't skip it. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> with that said and done, uh, Colin... Um... <laughs> Sam's like, okay, moving on. <laughs> well, you know. Uh... <laughs> Colin, uh, there are some new sources of revenue on the horizon. I mean, we have marijuana, we have uh, uh, gaming, 
Uh, and uh, the treasurer was also pushing for some new lottery products, uh, online gaming. And h- how's all this going to play? Well, not exactly new lottery products. What the treasurer is pushing for is to allow the lottery to sell the products that it already sells in convenience stores, at um, uh, vending machines. She wants to be able to sell those products online. Uh, this is something the treasurer has been pushing for the last couple of years. The legislature really has not embraced it at all, uh, hasn't shown a willingness to take it up. But her point was that uh, in fiscal 17, the lottery returned over a billion dollars uh, to the general fund for local aid. That was a record. Uh, Last year in fiscal 18, the lottery returned $997 million. Uh, But this year, the lottery is projected to only return $966 million. And the year after that, about the same, $967 million. Goldberg says the lottery's done all it can uh, to maximize revenue at this point, and the only way it can continue to grow revenue and return about a billion dollars a year is to move online. And and that's... uh Seeking clarification here, like the same lottery ticket that I buy in a store would be a, a digital version of the exactly. same lottery ticket. Exactly. Like, like the, the frosty uh, cash word. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You'd be able to scratch that uh, crossword puzzle type ticket online, virtually scratch it, I guess. Gotcha. Uh, and then on pot revenue, uh, Sam, the uh, Commissioner Harding, the revenue commissioner, said that DOR is not changing uh, its estimate for this current fiscal year, still projecting that the state will take in between 44 and $82 million in marijuana tax revenue. That, despite the slower-than-expected rollout of retail stores, uh, Harding's estimate was uh, built initially on the assumption that stores would open July 1st. Of course, they didn't open until November 20th, and still it's only two stores open. So we'll see if that estimate uh, actually comes in. Uh, for next year, fiscal 20, which would be the first um uh, the first full uh, year of legal retail marijuana sales. Uh, Harding is predicting that the state will take in about $132 million, but he said it could be as much as $172 million. Gotcha. And lawmakers seemed particularly interested in hearing estimates uh, from the gaming commission, from the gaming sphere, but uh, there was a little confusion as to uh, who should be producing those estimates. Right? Yeah, Senator Joan Lovely, who's been uh, leading the Senate Ways and Means Committee, uh, First asked uh, the Revenue Commissioner Harding uh, for the estimates on casino gaming revenue. Harding said DOR hasn't looked at gaming revenue and suggested that Lovely ask the Treasurer or the Gaming Commission. Uh, Lovely then asked the Treasurer, and the Treasurer uh, told her that her office also does not have gaming revenue estimates, suggested she talk to the Gaming Commission. I asked the Gaming Commission, which isn't part of uh, the consensus revenue hearing for its estimates. They told me that they don't have revenue estimates either and suggested I try the Executive Office of Administration and Finance. Uh, got word that they do, in fact, have revenue estimates uh, for oh. gaming. This current year's budget, fiscal 19 budget, uh, assumes $138 million in gaming revenue. And uh, fiscal 20, those estimates haven't yet been developed by the administration. All right. Thanks, Colin. Uh, now, Matt, Matt Murphy. Hey, over there. Hey, Sam. Hey. Part of the reawakening of the State House this week was uh, the shifting of some significant legislation, given a lot of stories in the news lately about the national grid lockout. And uh, that all kicked off on Tuesday with a jam-packed hearing on the first floor before the uh, Telecommunication, Utilities, and Energy Committee. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, yeah, Sam, that hearing was uh, quite a scene, actually. The room, uh, two hearing rooms, actually opened up to accommodate all of the union gas workers who showed up in a, in a, in a room that was absolutely sweltering. 
uh, and went on for hours as union workers shared their stories of what it's been like to be locked out of work since late June, what it's meant to their families to not have that paycheck coming in, and what it's meant to not have the health insurance benefits that they relied on. Uh, One couple, uh, the Harveys of Braintree, shared a story of learning just days before the lockout started on June 25th that uh, their son had a tumor on his kidney that needed to be removed, and uh, this young son, just 20 months old, then needed to go into chemotherapy, and they needed to figure out how to pay for it without the health insurance that they had counted on for this job. So uh, this was really the, the theme and tenor of this hearing, and this, like I said, went on for hours. Uh, before what really were sympathetic lawmakers on the Telecom Utilities and Energy Committee. Uh, It it was late in the afternoon by the time National Grid uh, met president in Massachusetts, Marcy Reed, and uh, the the person handling uh, the labor negotiations for the company here in Massachusetts got a chance to testify, and lawmakers really lit into them. Uh, telling them that they found it unconscionable, that they would eliminate health insurance benefits. And, you know, the company really struggled to explain uh, why they felt a lockout was necessary necessary after years of trying to get concessions from these two local unions over uh, pension benefits for new hires and uh, health insurance changes. So is anything going to come of all that emotional testimony? Uh, Where do we go from here? Well, that's the interesting thing, Sam. This hearing, uh, while it took on a broader, uh, well, it explored some broader themes here involved in the lockout, it was ostensibly about a bill filed by Rep. Jim O'Day of Worcester way back in July that would force National Grid to restore health insurance benefits to the workers for the duration of this labor dispute. There are some other provisions in the bill, like barring National Grid from accessing public funding, but uh, that was the thrust of the bill, to make sure these workers had health coverage while they were locked out of their jobs. But in a surprise to a lot of people, the morning of the hearing, House Speaker Robert DeLeo and members of his leadership team uh, in an informal session started moving a separate bill filed by a New Bedford Democrat, Rep. Antonio Cabral, that would create a essentially an unemployment benefit program, particularly for locked out workers. And with a lot of these workers staring at a January 15th uh, time frame for a lot of their UI benefits to run out, uh, the speaker started moving this bill uh, that would create a, a pool of money that National Grid would have to pay uh, that could keep those checks going to these workers if the labor dispute has not been resolved by then. Republicans did throw the brakes on that bill on Tuesday because they had some questions, but by the end of the week, they had resolved some of them, exempting some of the muni light companies from from uh, a similar situation if, if they were to lock out their workers. But this bill is now in the hands of the Senate, and we're waiting to see what the Senate would do. Uh, the governor expressed some sympathy for the workers. Uh, he said that uh, it's worth a discussion. He's, he's not sure about the details of this bill or the health insurance bill, but he's willing to take a look uh, because even while National Grid and some have argued that the legislature has no business getting involved in a private labor dispute, uh, the governor thinks and uh, clearly uh, House Democrats think that it's well within the realm for uh, state government to get involved, especially when it comes to a public utility. And this Cabral bill that's on the move is not specific to National Grid, but 
to utility workers in general, right? Utility it, companies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it will, and not even just utilities, but it's it directs the administration to set up uh, this sort of program where if an employer were to lock out their workers and these workers were to exhaust UI benefits and couldn't return to work through no fault of their own while these contract negotiations are ongoing, uh, that uh, there would be a, a separate fund set up to uh, support them. All right. Thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks, folks. We, uh, In wrapping up, we'll note uh, a number of comings and goings this week uh, on Beacon Hill or in the M.A. Poli sphere, uh, whether it be former Speaker Sal DeMacy resurfacing at the Statehouse for the first time since his compassionate release from uh, federal prison and then surfacing on the Jim Browdy show uh, the next day, uh, the departure of Public Safety Secretary Dan Bennett and the arrival of his successor, uh, former Corrections Commissioner uh, Tom Turco, the impending departure of uh, longtime State House employee and current Senate clerk uh, Bill Welch, and uh, perhaps just around the corner, uh, the word out there this morning on the airwaves was uh, perhaps the departure of Brighton native John Kelly from the White House staff. So we'll see. Uh, but we'll wrap up this week with uh, some more clips from those House farewell speeches. We've already heard from Rep. Corey Atkins of Concord earlier on in the program, but uh, we'll wrap up today with final words from departing Reps Jeff Deal of Whitman, Evandro Carvalho of Boston, Jim Lyons of Andover, Jeff Sanchez of Boston, and Keiko Aral of Lakeville. All right. Thanks, folks. Have a good weekend. You too, Sam. See you. Have a good one. Um, but as fate would have it, the last available seat for me was directly to the right of one Robert A. DeLeo, representative from the city of Winthrop and speaker of the great and general court of Massachusetts. And can I tell you that three hours later, I had one of the greatest evenings of my life. A gentleman, a historian, and one of the most civic-minded leaders this state could produce, I will never forget how welcome Bob made me feel and how gracious he has been to members of both sides of the aisle during my time in this chamber. Uh, I also want to give a, spe a special thank you to a woman uh, that I'm sure many of you have gotten to know over the years as well, uh, who will likely be upset with me because I did not tell her about this speech, uh, who's my rock, uh, my mom, who, who, you know, through the campaign that I just went through, was there through thick and thin, has been there from day one. Uh, she uh, is at home. I honestly did not even tell her about this, so she's going to be upset with me. But I figured this should at least, uh, uh, you know, give her, you know, I should at least give her a shout because, you know, truly, but for uh, us sweat and blood and tears, I wouldn't be uh, the man I am today. So, again, Mom, love you. Uh, you know, don't hate me for not telling you about this. I fully understand that pro-life is not a popular position here on Beacon Hill, nor is it politically advantage in the state at large. Despite knowing the political price that might, must be paid, that might be paid, <clears throat> I engage consistently and steadfastly on working to advance or at least make public the pro-life agenda. On pro-life, it would be foolish to proclaim any great advances or even small ones in the legislative process, or quite honestly, anywhere in state politics. With the ending careers of several strong pro-life legislators, this year, our minority voices advocating for the unborn will grow even dimmer. So I ask all of you to dream and continue the good work that I wasn't able to get done for the people who call this great Commonwealth home. And they're counting on you like I am. And it's been my honor to be a part of this house. And I wish you all Godspeed for yourselves 
this great commonwealth of Massachusetts, I won't say goodbye. I'll say hasta luego, todos. Gracias. It's been the honor of a lifetime to serve as a state representative from the 12th Bristol District. As I close my time out here in the 190th court, I want to wish you a happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, and leave you with the Aloha spirit. I hope you will carry that spirit forward and do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, wishing you all the best and much success in all future endeavors. Aloha. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.